When Lilius called me to ask if I would choose somebody to talk about, I, my mouth took over and my brain wasn't, was a little bit behind and I said, W.S. Graham. And, and I thought, actually I'm going to talk in public about W.S. Graham. And I want to say now that I'm not an expert on anywhere on W.S. Graham. In fact, I know almost nothing about W.S. Graham except the poems I like of his. Graham, for me, is, is a figure who I read a, a long time ago and then returned to much more recently. And I think that's probably true for many people. There was a kind of gap where people lost sight of, the, of one of the great poets of the 20th century in this country, certainly. And um, the process of rediscovery has been what I've been engaged with for the last few years. And I think, again, that's probably something that's been the case, especially since there's been some, at least finally, some decent publications of, of Graham's work, um, nicely edited, and especially this book. Um, so, with a qualification that um, I, I basically jumped into this without really thinking about what I was doing, I'll proceed. The pleasure of coming into the library and looking at some of the things you've seen at the back there, hopefully you have to take a chance to look at those if you didn't see them, on the way in is immense. Because one of, the, one of the things that I've been more engaged with recently myself as a, as a writer has been um, this relationship between the written text and the visual as forms of communication. And I've been working with artists, and I'm currently working with an artist now. And uh, one of the things that's interesting is that when you're looking at something visual, something's being communicated to you silently. And it's, a, it's an interest of Graham's, it's an interest of my own, so I felt as though there was a kind of point of communication between us at that point. But as we were going through um, the, the, the various things that are in the collection in the archive, um, I found this one, rather, I think, rather touching note in one of the notebooks. Um, it's on one page, there was, there was a reference to himself and then beneath it a reference to Nessie, as if it were like an, a part of an address book. And it said... W.S. Graham, nomad. And, I, and I, I, I felt plunged back into the moment when he sat there and opened that book. I'm sure it was the first thing he wrote in it, actually. Um, opened that book and wrote those words, W.S. Graham, nomad. And it made me think of all of the other poets in the 20th century who were nomads in their different ways. It made me think of, for example, Mandelstam, his beautiful poems about being a nomad about being essentially homeless and wandering the face of the earth. It made me think of some of Wallace Stevens' visions, although who could be more housebound in a sense than Wallace Stevens, who, according to the anecdote, was told by his wife to smoke his cigars in a cupboard so that it didn't, it didn't, the smoke didn't disturb her. A man who very rarely left Hartford for any length of time. When he did, it was like a holiday. But um, he wrote this wonderful, these wonderful poems about that sense of being rootless, about being nomadic as a poet. And this, is, this sense of being nomadic is very closely tied to people who, it seems to me, who, who work with language. There's something about language is nomadic. Language is blown about on the wind, if you like. I don't think I need to go, I hope I don't need to go through the kind of basic um, depth, and any depth anymore about Graham's life, the, the claim to be a nomad is perhaps not as justified as some of the 20th century poets. But uh, you all know, I think, that I imagine that um, Graham was born in Scotland but spent most of his life elsewhere. 
He travelled in, in Scotland and Ireland. He trained as a draftsman. He then also did structural engineering. And one of the things one sees in the manuscripts and his notebooks is the evidence of that visual skill. The nomadic aspect, I think, is because um, Graham, for me, never got to belong to um, a community of writers fully because, it, uh, in a sense, the, the critical establishment kept rejecting him. They rejected him for his early work, and even when he, he changed his style um, in the middle of the 50s, they rejected that as well. And, um, you know, because, because of the, the advent of the movement. And um, he, he, I think, is a kind of cultural nomad. When he comes to Cornwall, he's, he's quite settled, for the second time anyway. He's quite settled. And he finds himself in a community of visual artists. He also lived, I'm sure you know, in, in relative poverty for a large part of his life. He got put on the civil list in the mid-70s and was re received a pension of £500 per annum, um, which tied him over. And... and um, began a new, a new spurt of creativity at that period because of it being more settled and, and more, more secure. So uh, it kind of challenges one of the myths, if you like, of, of, of the poet, of the wandering poet, that, that insecurity creates the possibilities for, for work. I think actually poets sitting in, in, in the same house for whole winters does tend to lead to good work. I want to quote a couple of things that um, were said by critics and in the mid-50s, about the night fishing in particular. Um, there's a wonderful, uh, we found this wonderful clipped out um, review, which Graham obviously kept and obviously liked. There weren't that many of those. And um, this is Frederick Laws writing about the night fishing. And he said that the poems were about herring fishing, lovemaking, and writing poems, all of them activities which demand a man's full attention. Well, that was rather nice. But Eliot said... Eliot said, some of the, these poems, by their sustained power, their emotional depth and maturity, and their superb technical skill, may be among the more important poetical achievements of our time. And that's what Eliot said about the night fishing. It's kind of interesting, he wrote a review about a book that he was, for which he was editor. I don't think you're allowed to do that anymore. But um, there's, a light, there's a nice note in, the, in one of the cases at the back. And um, Graham writes... I heard from Elliot yesterday, and I'm, I'm really pleased with what he said, but of course he would be kind. There's that kind of self-deprecating quality about that. Although people have recorded Graham as being the most competitive poet, poet in London, someone wrote about him, and he was a very prickly character, extremely you know, competitive, and always pushing himself forward. I don't, I don't see him as that when he's on his own in his study, writing letters or writing poetry. I was trying to think about... The subject matter of the, what draws me as a reader to Graham's poetry. And I made a list of the things that I find there, and I think everybody, in any poet, one finds different things depending on the reader, who the reader is. This is my list the sea, the north, cold, silence, communication through language, communication by other means love and friendship, and uh, towards then especially, the, uh, the later period, the visual arts, the, letters he, the letter poems he wrote to artists. And these are the subjects I want to continue uh, to, to, to um, focus on. Um, but I want to read a poem which, which isn't in, in your pile there. And he, he wrote two very beautiful poems to painters who had, uh, after their deaths, um, 
memorial poems, if you like, but they're, they're epistolary poems as well. This is in several parts. I'll just have a short break between each, each section. Dear Brian Winter, this is only a note to say how sorry I am you died. You will realize what a position it puts me in. I couldn't really have died for you, if so I were inclined. The Khan foxglove here on the wall outside your first house leans with me standing in the Zeno wind. Anyway, how are things? Are you still somewhere with your long legs and twitching smile under your blue hat walking across a place? Or am I greedy to make you up again out of memory? Are you there at all? I would like to think you were all right and not worried about Monica and the children and not unhappy or bored. Speaking to you and not knowing if you are there is not too difficult. My words are used to that. Do you want anything? Where shall I send something? Rice wine? Meanders? Paintings by your contemporaries? Or shall I send a kind of news of no time leaning against the wall outside your old house? The house and the whole moor is flying in the mist. I am up. I've washed the front of my face and here I stand looking out over the top half of my bedroom window. There Almost as far as I can see, I see St. Burian's church tower. An inch to the left, behind that dark rise of woods, is where you used to lurk. This is only a note to say I'm aware you are not here. I find it difficult to go beside houseman's starlit fences without you, and nobody will laugh at my jokes like you. Brian, I would be obliged if you would scout things out for me. Although I am not just ready to start out. I am trying to be better, which will make you smile under your blue hat. I know I make a symbol of the foxglove on the wall. It is because it knows you. I find that poem very moving, as, as is... Um, the other poem, which was written for Peter Lanyon after Peter Lanyon died in a gliding accident, which is... I don't think there'll be time to read both, actually. But um, it's called The Thermal Stair, if you want to read the whole thing. But I just wanted to say a few lines from that as well. Because I think this is a clue to something about all poetry, or all poets, possibly, anyway. This is a few lines from The Thermal Stair. The poet or painter steers his life to maim himself somehow for the job. His job is love imagined into words or paint to make an object that will stand and will not move. Now, for me, the key word there is maim. And it's an interesting choice of word. What is it about the creative person that requires this process of maiming in order to work? And I think that lies at the centre of the W.S. Graham enterprise 
And I think it lies at the center of my enterprise too. And it may be that it lies at the center of anybody's enterprise when they're making something. But um, I'm going to throw that out there to hang in the air and hopefully pick up on it later. The closure thing I want to do um, is the found picture. I chose this uh, poem because I wanted to relate. I, I was asked. I, mean, I have to stress this. I didn't want to come and talk about my own work here, um, but Lilius told me that I had to relate my choice of poet to my own work. So I chose this particular poem partly because I love the poem, and it's one of it's one of the great um, poems of the 20th century, I think. But also because it relates to something that I'm going to talk about in my own poem, and the same concerns that seem to me to be there about imagination and visual art. And I want to just read this poem out. Again, it's in, it's in sections, not quite as long as the previous one. And then I'll just go over a few points, because we will run out of time if I talk too long. Um, but just about some of the things that drew me to this poem. The Found Picture. Flame and the garden, we are together in it, using our secret time up. We are together in this picture. It is of the early Italian school, and not great, a landscape maybe illustrating a fable. We are those two figures barely discernible in the pool under the umbra of the foreground tree. Or that is how I see it. Nothing will move. This is a holy picture under its varnish darkening. The tree of life unwraps its leaves and makes its fruit like lightning. Beyond the river, the olive groves. Beyond the olives, musical sounds are heard. It is the old, authentic angels weeping out of bounds. Observe how the two creatures turn slowly toward each other in the bare buff and yearning in their wordless place. The light years have overvarnished them to keep them still in their classic secrets. I slant the canvas. Now look into where, under the cracking black, a third creature hides by the spring. The painted face is faded with light, and the couple are aware of him. They turn their tufts out of his sight, in this picture's language, not wanting to be discovered. He is not a bad man, or a caught Tom peeping out of his true time. He is a god, making a funny face across the world's garden. See, they are fixed, they cannot move within the landscape of our eyes. What shall we say out of love, turning toward each other to hide in somewhere the breaking garden. What shall we say to the hiding God? I don't know if anybody's ever managed to, get to identify a source for this picture. I think it's a kind of generic picture and the, and the title saying suggests that it's found in the imagination. It's something that is discovered somewhere. But there's a finding process that happens throughout the painting, throughout the description of the painting in the poem. First, we talk about the picture in quite generic terms. It's of the early Italian school, and not great. A landscape may be illustrating a fable, but we don't say what the fable is there. We don't say what the, what the painting is there. Yeah? We don't say, say it's Adam and Eve at that point. 
And the two figures uh, in the painting are the poet and someone else. And they become, the person he's addressing, becomes part of the painting with him. So the, the, the speaker of the poem is moving in and out of the painting all the time. We then, with the reference to the tree of life, and obviously the two figures begins to give us a clue, but when, it doesn't necessarily follow that this is Adam and Eve yet. But when you get the tree of life unwrapping its leaves, now we know where the, the seed is Eden and that the two figures in the painting are Adam and Eve in an early Italian Adam and Eve. And there's lots of those, and lots of them aren't very good. So um, it's not the, the painting is not important because of the skill and craft of which it's made. It's important because of the fable that it's illustrating. In, in the third section, the, the nakedness, and, and the nakedness is rather, rather beautifully referred to it, this reference to the bare buff and hiding their tufts. It's lovely kind of childlike language, isn't it, really? It's quite innocent. And Graham, I'm sure you know, but Graham is capable of far from innocent language. If you look through the archive, you'll, we didn't put any out on display and fear, for fear of offending, but there's a lot of not particularly innocent language uh, there, and quite strong sexual language, for example. But here, this, this gentleness and this sense of, om, kind of almost childlike language um, dominates. And then, then this other figure appears. And when you read the poem for the first time, when you listen to the poem for the first time, you don't know who this other figure is yet. Who is this other figure coming, you know, appearing here? Because the couple are aware of him. To begin with, I think you could think of it as being the serpent, a third creature hides by the spring. That suggests the snake, the serpent, the, um, the devil. But it would seem not. This, this, this furtive hiding creature seems to be God judging and coming along and catching them out. Yeah? He's not a bad man or a caught Tom, as in peeping Tom, peeping out of his true time. And he's a god making a funny face across the world's garden. That's a very kind of radical um, image of the deity, I think, for its time. And then, again, these two figures are kind of frozen um, in, in, in their landscape, and they become the people, the two people that were talking, the, the, the poet and his interlocutor. What shall we say to the hiding god is a question addressed to the other person with whom the poet is speaking. What shall we say out of love, turning toward each other to hide? And this is, um, this is for me, kind of the, the crux of the beauty of the poem. The idea that these two people turn towards each other, and when you turn towards the person you love, you turn towards them to, as it were, reveal something of yourself, to communicate something of yourself. You turn to someone to speak to them, to say something, and especially when you're turning towards them out of love, you're trying to, to say something significant to them, to, to communicate with them, to join with them. But instead, these figures turn toward each other to hide in somewhere the breaking garden. To hide, they look to each other to hide the loss of Eden. They look to each other to hide the judgment that's been made on them for what they've done. And I want to pick up on that theme later on as well. So I think that's a, an important theme in Graham's work. And again, it's something that I feel strongly operates in what I do. We could talk about that poem for a long, lot longer, but I'm conscious of time passing. But I think you'll agree it's a very beautiful poem, and it's a poem that's freighted with, with many questions. 
about communication and about our position um, before some kind of divinity, but not the traditional one, but a kind of almost animal divinity within nature. Let's, let's come back to that idea. I want to take a, about ten minutes now to try and relate what I've been saying about Graham, which uh, is necessarily impressionistic, to, to my own activities as a writer. What Graham says um, in one of his poems is, feeding the dead is necessary. It's just one line. Feeding the dead, and one of the whole section, the, the one line is, feeding the dead is necessary. And he's saying, yes, of course, that feeding the dead is necessary, but to whom? Feeding the dead is necessary to ourselves. Surely at least as much as, as, as necessary to the dead themselves. And I've always believed that practice of any art is an affirmation of the community of the living and the dead. One of the things I think is wrong with our society, if you like, is um, that we try and sweep away the, the idea of death and we try and forget the dead. We, we, we make them into something other than, than our fellows. We, we distance ourselves from them and we push them off over there. We blame them or we bury them or we, we, we make, put them on a pedestal. Now, as recently when I was in Jura, somebody said to me something which I found very touching. They said, in Jura, we don't forget the dead. The dead are with us. There's a sense of community with the dead. And um, they were talking about a specific person who died the, the year before and talking about the ways in which they perpetuated that person as part of their community. And I feel that, that, that those words, feeling the dead is necessary, is, is about that. It's about that um, idea of continuing to maintain our relationship with the dead as part of a community. And I feel that as a practicing writer, what I do is feed the dead, and, and among those dead is Graham, and Graham, of course, feeds me, because uh, if you feed the dead, they feed you back, which is, in a sense, what community means. So my one personal connection with, with Graham is kind of interesting from my point of view, anyway, um, in, 1980, in the early 1980s, I was uh, staying with a friend in a street in Cambridge, up in um, the Grantchester end of Cambridge. I was staying with a friend because I was, trying, I was recovering from one of my frequent bouts of um, self-destructive uh, activities. And during that time, uh, a friend of mine called Mick Gow was organising something called the Cambridge Poetry Festival. And to the Cambridge Poetry Festival came W.S. Graham. And in those days, it still happens, I think, the friends of the festival would volunteer to put up the poets, not knowing what they were letting themselves in for in some cases, would put up the poets who were coming to stay in the town during the festival. And about four doors away from where I was staying, there was a very nice lady who had children and a normal wife and things like that, who had volunteered to do this, and she was um, the recipient of W.S. Graham, who, in the, I put a copy of a letter that he wrote to Mick Gower, in the, in the case, well, we put a copy in the case back there, and he said in the letter, I wish I had eaten better and drunk less. And again, I was plunged back into the moment when he sat down to write that. I know that feeling of writing that coded apology to, to people who had been my hosts, and I hadn't behaved very well. Um, I think most, uh, most poets certainly... I've had experience that, of that moment of writing that apologetic, but sort of slant-wise apologetic letter, wanting to only half acknowledge how awful you've been. But during that trip, um, Graham was 
relatively awful. In fact, the lady who lived in the house asked the organisers if, if he could move somewhere else. <laughs> so it was quite a, quite a sad occasion in some ways. But I remember the, 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 the deep pleasure of being a near neighbour of Graham's for about three days until she asked him to, to move out of the house and he moved to one of the hotels in town. And I, I, I saw him walking along the street, but I didn't have the courage to say anything to him, as is so often the case. That was my kind of personal connection. I also knew Mick Gower, who was the organiser, and he's a lovely guy. He wrote children's books and a very nice man. But um, I felt that regret really keenly, that moment of regret. And I felt also that, that um, community with him of that maiming process, that self-maiming process. The self-maiming goes into making the work, and then the, the, the side effects of that can be rather unpleasant for other people. I want to conclude by looking at the poem of my own. I've managed to spin not saying anything about this poem out for quite a long time. So. But again, this poem was... The idea of this poem is to, to create a painting which doesn't exist. But in this case, I wasn't thinking of, of Graham when I wrote it, but then I felt the, the kinship afterwards. In this case, I wanted to write a painting. I've done it before with Stanley Spencer. I wrote a painting of Stanley Spencer's which doesn't exist. And I had somebody come up to me after a reading, and I read, I'd read the poem, and this person came up to me after reading and said, oh, yeah, I love that painting. It's the one in such and such. And, and I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, really? Because <laughs> I'd made the thing up. I mean, it was a Stanley Spencer thing, which I invented. But I, I thought I'd be on safer ground here with Fabricius. Uh, Fabricius um, was a painter who lived in Delft. And he was beginning to acquire a reputation. Some people said to him is, he was a new Rembrandt. Said that, you know, he was as, as skilled as Rembrandt. We don't really know what they based that on because very little of Fabricius's life, uh, well, of his work, um, remained after the great explosion of Delft uh, in 1654, if I remember rightly. And Fabricius had his studio um, quite close to the arsenal in Delft. And when the arsenal blew up, all of Fabricius' work was destroyed, including himself. He was blown up with the person who was sitting for a portrait at the time. So, of course, now we have this wonderful thing for anybody. It's a gift. I mean, it's very sad that, that he died in that way. But it's like the, the lost films of, uh, you know, the lost version of Magnificent Ambersons by Orson Welles. We can only dream about how beautiful the ending would have been if the studio hadn't hacked it to pieces and made a, a studio ending to it. For me, I spent my lifetime dreaming about the paintings that Fabricius either had painted and were in the studio when the studio blew up or would have painted had he lived longer, um, being you know, the second Rembrandt, as it were. So the idea here was I give myself carte blanche to create a painting which nobody can deny um, existed because nobody can prove that there wasn't a painting exactly like this. Leaning against the wall in Fabrizio's studio with the, with the um, paint drying at the very moment when the arsenal blew up. I think it's quite a nice exercise, as I suggested, for home entertainment as to imagine all the things that great artists who died at the age of you know, 18 or whatever, uh, 25, 36, would have done if they'd lived longer. And the, the painter Fabrizio's Brent Ginsworth and the lost Noli Mitangiri of 1652. And the, the Noli, it was a good excuse to return to the Noli Mitangiri incident, which is when you know, Jesus is newly risen from the dead and he meets um, Magdalene and he says, you know, don't touch me, I'm not yet returned to my father. This is the myth we choose to do without. 
And surely the painter imagined the garden he shows as blue-green and mandarin, the improbable fruits and blossoms, the patient birds, the held breath of the shade. Surely he imagined it with no one in the foreground but himself, a scene from childhood, say, or early love, a moment's homesick reinvention, not quite true, and yet more trusted than the authorised account. It seems so much a pretext for the real, that dove in the upper branches, that wisp of cloud, those children in the distance playing quoits, or calling out from one head to the next the only names they know in all the world. It seems so much a pretext for the given, less gospel than the brilliant commonplace of all we take for granted, vines and thorns, and morning dew receding in the grass, that gold light in a stand of tamarisk, a woman, woman and man arriving at this moment, not by chance and not quite by design, their puzzlement, the first step in a lifelong discipline of knowing what they can and cannot touch, what goes unspoken and what must be told, a local sound, though everything is one, the smell of hyacinths, a veil of bees, the closed wound and the healed, this afterlife. The woman cannot speak. She has no words. Nothing she sees is true until a man confirms her story. Not one man, but four when giving evidence before a judge. A man to echo everything she says. A man to write it down and make it holy. So what we hear is always second-hand, as one man tells another of a scene he never witnessed, spelling out in words the mysteries of touch and nothingness. And this is what we choose to do without, this testimony, upright men and true, speaking an authorised version, sexless, untouched. They misunderstand what she says. They make it new, we tell it for the version they will write as gospel, pass from one mouth to the next, till something whole and vivid has emerged. The empty shroud, the angel in the tomb, the resurrected man so like himself his twin could dip three fingers in the wound to feel the warmth, and all she memorized, retold in altered form, is true enough. If anything is true that can be told, when so much of the whole has been admitted. The painting says the dead cannot be touched. Nothing is carried over, nothing is held. Even the people we love must steal away in other guises, shadows in the dust, or something gone adrift between the trees, lost in the wind or the light of transmigration. And this is how the spirit brings itself to step aside a gift to the unknown, since life itself is seamless and entire, tendon and bone remembering decay as seeds remember eggs, sorry, trees, eggs conjure flight. The real unmakes itself in every hand that reaches out to touch and grasps thin air. The newborn stranger hurrying away to other facts, unhindered by desire, the wisp of smoke, this song, this tilt of bells. The painter cares for nothing but the light, the patterns he knows, the shapes of this commonplace magic, 
acres of grass or the shadows in a stand of citrus trees between this moment and the middle ground. This is his single chance to catch a glimpse of how the soul continues, how it steps from one life to another, almost touched by what it leaves behind, a naked thing the woman half mistakes for wind or song, irrational perhaps. And yet for years he's carried in his nerves that other self who might have come in some bright parallel, a purer logic, drawing out the form he cradled in his chest with each held breath. Irrational, yet what seems fixed in us is haunted by a voice we never hear, and if the self is fixed, what soul there is is always something else, a practiced craft that ventures ounce by ounce upon its world, the way a skater ventures onto ice, one heartbeat at a time. And if the self were noun, what soul there is is like a voice before it starts to speak, Returning, as they say, we must return in one form, then another, cat, then bird, then spider in the angle of the wall, weaving a trap for flies, and at the last, the blue spark of a fly, some autumn night, flickering out, the relic of this fire becoming water, moonshine, flecks of dust, time after time, and each time a smaller goodbye. Alone for the first time in weeks, and starting again on something he'd almost abandoned, he's thinking of the time he saw a girl on the frost-whitened drink of the green one hard December morning, not quite dawn, his neighbors asleep and him in a tattered coat and slippers in the gold cell of the attic brewing tea. Ghosts didn't bother him much, but this was one he'd never seen before, a dark-haired girl in sandals and a thin white summer dress, her head turned to the light, the look on her face less hope than apprehension. It took him three short steps to reach the window, lights and shadows on the glass becoming shapes, then absence, then the thought of something lost before it even happened, and when he looked again through ferns of ice, nothing was there. Yet now as he sets to work in an empty room with hours to fill, he's thinking of the time he saw her, how he knew that he had seen and guessed he'd been deceived, the way we guess there's something in the world we cannot name, though each of us negotiates the form it happens to assume. Not quite the ghost he'd thought, he thought he'd seen that morning while the house was still asleep, but something he would claim if ever it returned, half girl, half frost, a resurrection waiting to begin in flesh and bone, in touch and self-forgetting. I don't think of myself as being influenced by Graham. And then I, I, look at, I started looking at that poem and thinking about the Graham poem that I was comparing it with. And I found that that poem was the echo in lots of ways of the Graham poem. And because Graham uh, gives us Adam and Eve, and uh, my theology at least, um, Jesus and the Magdalene are kind of the resolution of Adam and Eve. They, they are uh, two figures in a landscape. But... In this case, the sin is redeemed, as it were. The, the sin is taken back by Jesus, that is. And so the meeting of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and that judgment of God and, and their guilt and their turning towards each other to hide something, even as they want to reveal something, seems to me to be re resolved in the meeting of Jesus and in the Magdalene in, the, in my invented painting.
I want to just finish by saying, of, saying something from the dark dialogues because I think, it, I think it sort of sums up the way I feel about the practice of making something, not just poetry, but any kind of making. I think uh, I feel a, a strong kinship of, be, of being torn between two poles. On the one hand, the maimed quality one has to have to make something. On the other hand, the possibility of this sublime moment where communication is almost possible in language. Almost, I say. And a poem, when it works, is what Graham calls an aside from the monstrous, which means it's the same thing as love. I'll just read this one. This is the first section of the Dark Dialogues. I always meant to say language swings away further before me. Language swings away before me as I go, with again the night rising up to accompany me and that other fond metaphor, the sea. Images of night and the sea changing should know me well enough. Wanton with riding lights and staring eyes, Europa and her high meadow bull fall slowly their way behind the blindfold and across this more or less uncommon place. And who are you and by what right do I waylay you where you go there happy enough striking your hobnail in the dark? Believe me, I would ask forgiveness, but who would I ask forgiveness from? I speak across the vast dialogues in which we go to clench my words against time or the lack of time, hoping that for a moment they will become for me a place I can think in and think anything in, and aside from the monstrous. And this is no other place than where I am, here turning between this word and the next. Yet somewhere the stones are wagging in the dark, and you, whoever you are, that I am other to, stand still by the glint of the dyke's spar stone. Because always, language it's where the people are. Thanks.